foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. This is the Move Your DNA podcast, a show where movement science meets your everyday life. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist, author, and animal. All bodies are welcome here. Let's get moving. Friends, you may or may not know this about me, but I spend almost all of my time thinking about movement. And I'm not talking about exercise or even human movement. I'm often focusing on how the movement of everything is connected. And humans are an animal that has had a tremendous impact on all other living things, really, and also also all non-living things. So biomechanics is a cool field because it's the study of the way mechanical forces impact all living things. It's not just sports and bicep curl or squat exercise form. The interaction of forces is why all living things have evolved to the ultimate shape that they have. It's why vertebrates, so that's whales, humans, and snakes, to name a few, why they all have similar skeletons, even if there are nuances that relate to the environment or locomotion style of that animal. So I find biomechanics, the way living things move and are affected by movement, beautiful and broad. And today, for the first time on the Move Your DNA podcast, we are going to talk about non-human animal movement. My guest today is Dr. Andrea Graves. She has a PhD in animal behavior and welfare with a focus on stress in chickens. She wrote the book, What Your Chickens Want You to Know, to help backyard chicken keepers understand their chickens' behavioral needs, which aren't always obvious. She works as a science journalist and editor, and the columns and features she writes are mostly about environmental health and animal welfare. She is also the science editor for my most recent books, Grow Wild, 
Rethink Your Position and the upcoming workbook for building your perfect movement plan. I was very excited to have this conversation with her. Whether you like animals, you're interested in animal welfare, or you just like to hear the concept of nutritious movement applied more broadly, that is to say beyond humans, there is something for you in this episode. And on a side note, we are pretty sure my microphone broke for this episode. I have a new one heading my way. You will hear that the sound isn't as good as it should be, but the conversation is still listenable. Thanks so much to our audio engineer, Brock Armstrong. Look for better sound coming in the next show. Now to the interview. Dr. Andrea Graves, welcome to Move Your DNA. Hi, thank you, Katie. It's really good to be here. It's good, to, it's good to talk with you. So I'm a chicken mother. I think many people who listen to this podcast might have gleaned that at some point. What do my chickens want me to know? Well, I think that they are very happy with what you know from, from what I heard from your last podcast. They want you to know that they get bored. Uh, they want to really explore and interact with their environment. The last thing they want to do is to be kept in a in a box with a whole lot of food they can eat that's really mixed and really provided for them. Um, they love to be interested and stimulated. Yeah, you know, I I have your book. I refer to it regularly. My both my children have read your book because because it was so it was beautifully written. It's easy to interact with. Um, and I look the way that I feel about my chickens is the way I feel about my children and kind of all living things, which is this recognition that there's a sentience and a need for like a quality life, you know, for everything, whether they're my chickens, like I have a hard time, like I don't like locking up animals. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, find that to be the experience that I would want for myself or my children or any other thing. And so when I was talking earlier about how I think about movement, I think about animals as, and I'm going to say animals, I'm not going to keep saying non-human animals. Like I'm just going to make the word animal for right now be non-human animals. I, I think of them often as needing a quality of life that really requires sort of the same things, you know, adequate movement, diverse movement, community, nature, you know, all these things that I've um, laid out in my work. And before we get into that, like, how, do, how did you come to specialize in chickens? Like, why, why chickens? And, and why did you write the book? My first interest in animal behavior and welfare wasn't even chickens. And I didn't really grow up with the, what I'd call a particularly nature-rich childhood any more than other, any other urban child in New Zealand did. I mean, yes, we could go out to great nature, but it wasn't something my family did regularly. It was more school trips and things. I, I watched a documentary on television and it, it showed a a pig with her piglets in a farrowing crate. You know, there's bars around these pig mothers so that they can't, they can stand up and lie down, but that's pretty much all they can do. They can't turn around for weeks on end. And this upset me just deeply, really, mm. really deeply. Ran out of the room and cried and stopped eating um, bacon or pork or anything from a pig. Um, and... In fact, I, I, I really enjoyed animal behaviour when I studied biology and I worked on shorebirds um, to start with, uh, a, a shorebird that lives on the, the coast near here. 
And then when I did my PhD, in fact, it was just my my supervisor uh, who worked closely with chickens. And so I wanted to work with her. And so I worked with them. That was, that was all it was. But yeah, straight away, I realized these are such interesting creatures. They are so interesting. Chicken TV is my favorite show. Well, I, I need to check that out, actually. I haven't seen chicken TV. That's just my word for watching them. That's just what I oh, say, God. you know. Oh, kids are little, oh. We used to go, we would say, let's go watch chicken TV. And, you know, to go watch them first thing in the morning and to watch, uh, com- there's complex things happening, you know, and from that you could pick up, you know, you could see where the nests are hidden. You could see, you know, they talk about pecking order. You can see all of these things play out. And um, so, yeah, that's what I mean by chicken TV. I don't, there's probably a TikTok or YouTube video that is chicken TV, but I just mean stepping outside and observing, you know, for hours of amusement. I should have known that you wouldn't watch actual TV, Katie. I I, I watch TV fine, but, but yes, but it's not, it wouldn't be my favorite thing, but chicken TV, it is my favorite thing. And it is amazing um, how when you actually kind of hang out and watch them and whether you're just staying still doing that or whether you're gardening around them or whatever how you see so much more and notice so much more that you would that you wouldn't if you were just throwing them scraps and collecting eggs and moving away but yeah these are these are super interesting creatures they're hilarious they can be you know a little bit aggressive very dexterous very Mm -hmm. athletic uh very curious and their sounds you know (laughs) The sounds are just so wonderful. Yes, I love chicken chicken language. You know, um, I, I took a class on bird language, which I wrote to you um, not too long after I had taken it. And I I think I might have talk, talked about this class a while ago, but what was great about that class is I'm more of a, I would say, visually dominant person. You know, I learn through reading books, observing with my eyes, but I'm not a particularly good listener you know, like the spoken word is not how I would um, tend to take in information. So when I went to this bird language class, it was it was a you know a week long intensive in the art and practice of listening, and it involved you know a large group of people sort of canvassing an area and jotting down notes in a particular time period of all the different birds, you know, alarms and songs and watching some of their behaviors and they have ditching behaviors. Like when they, you know, if a predator's coming in, if it's a lower predator, they tend to move one way as opposed to being a sky predator. Yet some birds sentinel, they sit up at top and they sort of take one for the team and communicate what's happening and, and learning all of that. Um, and then coming together as a group and painting a picture of what was happening over a larger area. And it's a very similar way to um, different uh, bush people, you know, how they are able to tune in to animal language as a way for their own safety, you know, to know when snakes are moving. And just like that was very transformational for me. And I began to listen to my chickens and pick out you know, the word, I'll say the word, the sound for someone's in my yard, it's not threatening. Someone is in my yard, it is threatening. All the all clear sign, you know, and, and finding these words and being able to duplicate them when I wanted to let them know everything was fine. You know, I did, 
you know, which was the, which is the sound. And then they immediately calm down, you know? So like, that's been a hobby of mine and, and it really, it's made my life so much better. I think it is, it makes life richer, doesn't it? Yes. It makes life richer. And, and I am really interested in how hunter gatherers are incredibly attuned to their environment. So you hear little snippets on documentaries and in books, you know, they will be able to see an eagle two kilometres away and know what's happening on the ground under the mm-hmm. eagle. Or if, um, you know, and you've done some tracking work, or if, if there's a new, if they wake up in the morning and they look at the ground and they know who's walked from whose hut to the other hut because the footprint is different in the sand, you know, the, the social life is written in the sand. And, and and the truth is that we've got those same brains just the way mm-hmm. we've got those same bodies, but we don't grow up learning all that stuff and, and it's not our, um, you know, so we're watching television and reading nursery rhymes and that those other parts of our brain get trained up. And the part that was trained up in your brain when you did your bird course, um, and us, it lies dormant, but it's still there and we can develop it. And it's, it's, it's thrilling. It is thrilling, especially, you know, going into it at 45 years old or however old I was to be like, I, now I can't turn it off. It's, it's sort of like the power of reading. You know, once, once you can read, it's hard to uh, be passing road signs and not pick up on the symbology because it's just available for, it's, it's in your sensory fields and it goes in. And so now, you know, I can be hiking, I can do anything and I will just you know, I just know the direction. I'm like, oh, there's something happening over here. There's, there's, you know, if I'm with a big group and I can't figure out where they are, you can always listen to the birds to kind of get a sense of like, oh, they're, they're cutting across this section of the forest over here because I can hear the birds yeah. suddenly becoming, you know, conversational, tr- passing along that information. So it's just, you know, for people who like tracking or just like even learning, I have just found bird behavior, and then with a a special caveat on bird language, bird sounds, as a substrate to be read. You know, it's it's the same as a book. You open a book and you put it in front of your eyes and you can take in this information. Well, you know, the outside world is always similar, a a canvas for your ears and tuning in, you know, it's it's been really great to be all this was going on around me the whole time. It's like becoming suddenly literate, mm. you know, mm. and all the doors of that opens. It's, mm. it's similar. Mm. A different type of literacy. Yeah. A broader type of literacy. Yeah. I call it nature literacy. You know, it's just this idea of, you know, tracking the moon and seasons and, you know, to, to recognize, oh, that plant coming up means this, you know, some, it's not particularly complex other than there's a sheer, uh, number of details, you know, that go into it. And every, I imagine every landscape is really, you could become fluent in one landscape and not be fluent at all in a completely different place. So it is also very place, place dependent. Although I think um, there are more similarities than you might think, like an alarm call on your continent is going to be similar. You're going to recognize it in New Zealand or in Africa. postures of animals you know they kind mm-hmm. of um translate um all over the place as well so we may be a little bit more literate in foreign countries than we expect yeah it's not 
Like I have no idea what's going on. There's some definite awarenesses that will carry over. Um, so I heard your story of how you went into animal welfare. What are your thoughts on, and I, it's interesting that really what you saw was a lack of movement for that animal, right? The idea of looking at an animal that can't move and feeling um, traumatized, you know, horrified by looking at this situation. So to me, that means that maybe um, instinctively you had a feeling that an animal needs to be able to have access to movement. Um, as you went through your training, what did you learn about an animal's need to move? You know, like it could be chickens or it could be just animals in general. Like how, how was that taught as far as what sort of, sort of a pattern movements or movement needs animals have? Animal welfare is really, really connected to movement because um, I should start by saying that even though we keep animals in cells, sow crates or, you know, chickens in cages or in densely packed factory farms. And that's, you think that's all they know. Um, so you think, well, maybe, you know, they're fine. They don't care because that's all they know. But so mm -hmm. there's been really rigorous experiments done to make it absolutely clear that that is not the case. So they still have in them as really strong needs, the needs that were, that are, that represent the environment they evolved in. So for pigs and chickens, they really love to have stuff to sort through and scratch through on the ground. So this is part of their movement. And for chickens in general, actually, so perhaps we tend to think that animals need as much room as possible. For chickens, perhaps the, the quality of the environment that they can search through and move across is more important than the space. That is not an excuse to keep them crammed in as much as they're crammed in. I don't mean to say that that's okay. It's clearly not. Um, so for animals, they're, they're, the movements they can do and the environments they can physically interact with are deeply connected to, to their welfare. That said, yeah, there's these extreme confinements that we put them in, um, whether it's a cage or a crate where they really don't have enough room to move or whether it's just a really densely packed shed. It might not be densely packed when the animals are small, but they generally have been bred to grow very fast. So by the time they're getting close to being slaughtered, they are incredibly densely packed. So they're... Yeah, that, that, that their need to move is is very connected to what you might think of as their psychological well-being or lack of it. There's also um, physical ramifications um, of their their the way we've I guess bred them for a start that they. I mean, you can see a, a sausage dog, perhaps, you know, we know that we've bred dogs really extremely and they've got little legs and they're not going to go on the same kind of hike that um, other dogs might. But we've also bred um, pigs to have extremely fast growth weight rates and far more muscle than they uh, naturally would have because, you know, then they're worth more because they make more meat for us to eat. And... Um, 
they can get joint and bone problems. Um, broiler chickens, which are the meat chickens that we eat, again, they, you know, a, a table roast chicken is actually only 35 days old. So it hatched. Wow. 30, 35 days is about the weight of slaughter. It might go to 40. That's the same pretty much all over the world. Yeah, it's, it's so extreme. So these animals actually, when they're um, in, in the latter part of their very short lives, they can't walk very well at all. They're staggering under their weight. Um, so we've kind of stopped them being able to even physically move with our really, really clever um, selection, genetic selection for breeding. That's not the same as genetic modification, I should say. We just, they know what genes underlie these growth rates and they choose those ones to be the breeding birds. So, yeah, I mean, we, we physically stop them moving by, by wanting a, a really, really tasty, cheap table roast. Right. So those are two, dif- those are two different ways. One is physically... Uh, creating a barrier to movement. You know, like they don't have space to turn around or space to take a step. And then the other way is affecting their structure through the genes that have been selected so that maybe their legs won't hold their weight. So they could be, they could be in a giant amount of acreage, but they still would not be able to walk because of mm. the genes that they have. And then I think that's interesting to know that there's multiple ways of Affecting the movement. Of well, there was kind of a third way. Yes, there are. And, and, and in fact, free-range broiler chickens, they may be considered free-range because there's doors where they can go outside, but they actually right. can't get outside. They can't. That's right. Um, okay. Good. But there's also that third way that was slightly tucked in amongst what I said is that, yes, they could have even an adequate amount of space, but if it's just like slats or a bare concrete floor right. and they can't do the movement within that space that they want to do, um, that's also a, a way of um, not letting them move. And I guess that was one of the main reasons I wrote my book because I didn't really answer that question very well earlier is that I'd see people thinking that the ideal way to keep chickens was in kind of a field, a grassy field, you know, all tidy with fences at the mm-hmm. side and probably a little bit of weed control as if they were sheep or cows. And that is not what chickens want. And it, it just got to frustrating me that there wasn't more knowledge of this. Yeah, and I, and I, the jungle, sorry, Kate, I should point that out. Chickens yeah. evolved in in Southeast Asia on the edges of jungles. So think about the complexity of a jungle habitat, the really messy floor, branches, leaves, insects under the leaves, um, lots of low shrubbery, little streams to drink at the edge of. So, yeah, very, very different to how a lot of people will will keep their chickens. And and I appreciate that about your book because we, all of our chickens that we have had are very, um, they are old very old lines that have come from our family that have been, you know, so we get basically these large groups of, you know, the males and the females and all of the chicks had been mothered and they had all been raised. Like they have a very strong, um, they're banties. They're an old, you know, it's probably like a 30, at least 30 years of chickens being parented where a lot of the parenting skill has been, I think bred out of some children, you know, some chickens in that way. So, you know, they're excellent free rangers and they are strong because they're taught from a young age to climb and hop and they developed or at least maintain that skill set. 
But recently, um, after we had um, we had moved away for a while, and then we came back and we're ready to basically need to get chickens for one of my children, and we picked which we had never done before chickens from the feed store, you know, that just are in a box and you just pick peeps and we ended up taking the lot because we weren't going to leave just a few. So we took them all. So they had been together for a while at the end of the season. And, you know, they, we have, we start them where they're, um, they have lots of space, but it's covered from aerial predators because they had, you know, no rooster, no adult. But I, I was just watching them and all of my same sort of personal training instincts. I'm like, there's no way for them to figure out how to jump up to the next level because I had been observing banties in this familial context and watching, you know, roosters parent and sometimes sit and nest and like all sorts of things that you don't really see when you look at these, when you look at sort of this different society of chickens, I learned a lot more about um, chickens compared to if I had just looked at sort of the, the factory chicken, you know, where you're just passing out a single generation and there's high turnover because we don't eat our chickens. They're just for eggs and TV. Um, and, and I realized that there would be no way that their legs could possibly ever go from zero to a, a top roost bar and they had no supplements. So I created a chicken jungle gym. You know, and I was telling the kids, just like if I was trying to personal train a person, you know, it's like they're going to need some medium step between this and the next place. And so we were, you know, creating sticks and and creating levels of height. And then they would need to be shown that they could be taken up. So, you know, again, I have a daughter who will, you know, act like a chicken and she'll climb up to the top thing. And then they'll be like, oh, we go up there, you know, and then one goes. And then so like we spent probably, and I, it's all documented because I love filming these things to sort of teach people about movement and role modeling of movement and the role of movement, even in the human child, eventually learning these skills, but I can do it with my chicken so much faster because it's such a short generation, you know, if you will. And I really think that your book is important because I don't think that people consider the enjoyment of the animal, why they have them, the fact that they want to be hopping and jumping up and they want to hold things and turn things over and discover new things. Like everything that you think of your child needing, a chicken child and eventually a full-grown chicken needs that too. Yeah, they absolutely do. You I mean, they can survive without it. Yes, they For can sure. live a life without it. And, you know, so can people, but it's kind of a miserable one. Well, I mean, and I think that's sort of where we are with people right now. You know, I mean, not to say that all people are miserable in this way, but I think that we've gotten to point in our collective level of sedentarism. There's always outliers of people, but I'm talking about in general. We're at the point where people aren't really moving outside of, you know, flat and level, uninspired concrete, which, you know, you are saying, no, this chicken, that that in itself, it's void. It's the fact that it's void of complexity is another way to reduce movement. And yes. so many, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I hear you saying. It's, it's, yeah. it's just it's the same thing that I'm saying about the way we're walking, right? It's, you know, flat and level terrain. There's no vitamin texture and animals need texture and they need complexity that mimics 
the environment in which they involve, not only for their, you know, their hips and knees and wings and all these other parts, but for their psychological well-being. Mm. Because the two are completely wrapped up. I mean, we can stop ourselves being bored walking along a flat concrete path by listening to a podcast or whatever, but they can't, you know. The the movement is their thing. The movement is, and the exploration is their their mental stimulation. Yeah, they're not doing anything else. Another um, likeness is the issue of osteoporosis. So laying hens are really prone to osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. And... In some ways, it's almost so the, the caged ones really are because they don't get the movement. Um, and, and in general, they are so bred to lay so many eggs. So I, I picked out a statistic that I found earlier from a very reputable source, and that said that in 1970, now I've last year I've written it down. Yeah, okay. In 1975, the laying heads would pr- produce about 130 eggs a year. And now, thanks to the breeding, they produce 312. Actually, maybe it's more now because that was in 2008, 312 eggs a year. Uh, so even though their diets are, you know, highly supplemented with everything possible to keep their um, mineral balance healthy, they still get osteoporosis, particularly if they can't move properly. So the ones in cages are getting osteoporosis, but it's not, they don't get so many fractures because actually they're not, falling on anything or bashing against anything hard enough because they can't get enough velocity going. But the the really free-range ones will have stronger bones because they are able to have the force that builds up bones. But the... um, There's also a lot of them are kept in these barns inside and and they they tend to climb... They get to climb really high to lay their eggs. That's where the nest boxes are because there's perches, there's series of perches. So they do get the climbing high, but it's getting down again and they fly from very tall heights. I don't know, twice my height, three times. These are are high things when they want to come down to the ground and they just crash down. But, of course, there's such a stocking density below them that there's no gap for them to land in, so they'd land on other birds. And that slaughter there's quite a high rate they can see that the the keel bone of the birds are fractured Mm. Um, and there's leg fractures are a problem as well. So, yeah, these these birds are um, not getting the right forces to keep keep their bones healthy. It's interesting because when I was in graduate school, I feel like we used a lot of data, um, a lot of jumping and bone data came from sensors that had been inserted into chickens legs oh. that like I remember you know to look at things like strain rate um so it was I never thought if that data had actually come from animal welfare practice research you know to try to get a sense of it or if it it I don't it wouldn't make sense to me that it would be purely for humans because I'm not sure how much a human would benefit you know in terms of knowing about bone from chickens, but perhaps, you know, it's, it's similar enough where they could do different things to get a sense of what stimulates bone generation, what stimulates bone degeneration was from chickens. I just remembered that right now (laughs) Force sensors in the legs. So how do you feel about, I mean, do you feel like there are parallels between what you've learned from human movement and animal movement? I mean, like you, 
you know my work pretty well at this point. I mean, do you see similarities between what I'm trying to do and try to create a framework for people to recognize these are essential inputs that come that are very old. You know, they're not really based on what's happening in the culture. They're not really based on the deeds of the industrial complex. Like they're just these old, maybe they're a hindrance to us, but they remain as a need. And what animals need, whether they're wild or whether they are captive. I definitely get the, yes, I think that there are, there are huge parallels. Um, I think some of these needs that are in chickens, and when we're talk, saying old, Katie, we're not just meaning, oh, when the ladies wore long dresses and corsets, we're meaning millennia, yeah. 50,000 years ago. Um, because that's the kind of time scale that evolution operates on. Um, yeah, what a hindrance. What a hindrance for a pig to have a brain, you know, that <laughs> how much easier for everyone if there wasn't the sentient brain um, messing things up, you know, because um, it does mess things up for, for, for farmers and things as well because the pigs will chew on each other and the chickens pluck each other and they, you know, they go a little nutty. Um, but, yeah, it, when I found your work, Katie, it I was kind of shocked. I totally got it because, yes, what you are talking about and that these kind of ancient needs are inside our bodies and, hello, the way we're living is not satisfying them. Even the way we're going to the gym is not satisfying them. Because so I thought of myself at the time as, a, you know, quite an active, fit person who been to lots of aerobics classes and gone running. But because I understood this framework of, uh, and, and I should say, done all those things and yet still had a terrible bad back and kept getting really sore necks and had plantar fasciitis and had to wear orthotics, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm 40 and my body's breaking down. I don't understand it. And then when I started to read your blog post, which they were in those days, and it was called What Katie Says, or Katie Says, the Katie uh -huh. Says blog, um, I suddenly realized that all this stuff I understood from um, evolutionary, evolutionary bio biology with animals and the kind of needs of animals that were ancient and are still inside them was exactly the same in me, you know. And then uh, from the way you describe things, I... I suddenly realized how crazy this life was that my body had evolved as a life. Hey, I have a hunter gatherer body too. And here I was just sitting all the time and lying in a really soft bed and wearing these built up shoes. And yeah, it, so it was, it was quite transformational for me. And I don't have a bad back and I don't wear orthotics and my neck never hurts. Thank you, Katie. You're welcome. Thank you. And then also, yeah, like I think in one of my books I had written out, like if you're trying to, you know, if you were trying to set up a habitat, you know, for yourself, you know, consider primate habitat, like the way a zoologist would think about, well, you know, I've got to put this animal here in, in space, in a, in a confined space, not like a, a crate, but, you know, a, a habitat that they'll be dwelling in for some time, which is similar to our houses. You know, so many people rarely spend most of their time in their habitat, you know, that you're creating, you've creating a, a primate habitat would be as, you know, a close to ideal as far as, you know, the movement parts were concerned because you are a primate, you know, like it's, 
it's very similar. It's not identical, but it's quite similar if you want to make sure that you're hitting all the notes, you know, if you're hitting all the diverse notes of, of movement that you need. And, and that makes me want to kind of jump to, I know you don't perhaps know dogs as well as you know chickens, but when I do talk about animals and movement, so many people will bring up a dog, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is the idea that I will get a dog to help me move. Okay, that's one way that it tends to show up. And there's been actually um, quite a bit of research looking at dog walking as, a, as what is called purposeful movement. And purposeful movement for people is much easier for them to adhere to than non-purposeful movement. Non-purposeful movement would be um, exercise, or it's, so it's not, not as non-purposeful is not, it's the term that's used in research, but it may be more like where the exclusive benefit is just for your individual health. So much harder for people to do um, uh, non-purposeful movement where they could sort of muster like my dog, well, my dog does need a walk. Um, that all being said, I don't usually recommend that people get an animal to help them with their fitness journey because other research has shown that a lot of people just don't walk their dog. They, that for many people have these sort of pack animals often, whether it's a horse or a dog, living in situations where there is no pack, right? Mm -hmm. So they're isolated. Um, they're not really brought into all of the elements of family goings on. So they often live these sort of isolated, bored, bored life, you know, and, and, and I hear this for dogs and I hear this for, um, children too. It's like, well, they have a big backyard with the idea, meaning if they want to just like, just go run around in circles. And then like that, that movement is something that you need to exhaust. Like that, that if you just run in place and sort of make the physical adjet like agitations of your body, that that suffices to bleed off this sort of primitive inconvenience that we've been saddled with, which is the need to move our body. But, but humans don't do that. And dogs don't really do it either. I mean, certainly dogs, a dog with space to run is better than a dog without space to run, but you're not really hitting those community notes and you're not hitting the complexity and randomness and curiosity that shows up in like more what I would just call nature, you know, which is the idea of getting to go into a, no a novel environment, move through it. I think of my dog as always reading all the notes of all the other animals that have been there, you know, and so constantly mixing up a route, um, mix, you know, just thinking about these animals, even something that isn't in your family, that's in ingrained in your family, probably most people, unlike us, probably don't have chickens regularly in the living room because I have a kid that won't stop bringing them. Can, she asked the other day, she's like, can I bring all my chickens into my room if I shut the door? And, you know, I've gone in and found cornbread all over her floor because she had the chickens over for a, a, a play, you know, a couple hour play date with her friends all in the chickens. And and they, we've got a couple chickens that just love her and coming into the house and they want to explore it. So, um but imagine more people do that with their dogs, bring them into the house with regularity, but it still doesn't meet that movement need. That we need a word for that curious novel 
exploration, multidimensional, like playground is the word that I think comes to mind. Like they need a playground, but it kind of needs to shift. You know, I, guess, I mean, it is playground, and I think I use that word for how to set up your chickens, kind of mm-hmm. the run, the area they can live in. But it almost demeans them to call it a playground, doesn't it? Because That's right. It's not, a, it's not just about, it's like saying to the child, oh, you can't play with that, it's not a toy. Children don't just play. They don't see things as toys and not toys. Like this is, the, this is real life for them. This is interacting and learning. So to call it a playground or a toy, I think it's a, it's, it doesn't respect that this is how important it is to them. Um, yeah, and of course, it's also considering again the 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 and you've done it really well when you talk about the way um, dogs have evolved as pack animals. You know, they're on the move a lot. And yes, I mean, I'm not certainly not a dog specialist. I've never actually owned a dog, but um, you know, obviously, smell is incredibly important to them. And you can see you walk with any dog, and they're just constantly checking out all the signals. So we have no awareness what of whatsoever. And so it's also about respecting that. Yeah, we've got this perception of life and what's necessary, and theirs is completely different. And in some way, theirs is so much more advanced than ours. So with dogs, it's obviously their smell. With cats, it's their their vision. And, um, yeah, senses that we can't comprehend. So, you know, give them credit. But I, I agree. We have, My neighbour, who actually introduced me to your work, has got a new dog. It's maybe three or four months old and she wants it to be an outdoor dog and there's room for it to run around and this dog is just so bored. My husband's <laughs> called it R-R because it's just, you know, in a distressed way all day. Um, that's that's not how dogs evolve. And, you you know, you're, you're if you're keeping it, she does walk it though, um, if you're keeping an animal that's really outside of what it's evolved to ex- expect, that dog, well, it might give up eventually. You know, but it's not. Um, I don't. I don't really think it's fair on the animal. Well, it's not fair on the animal. Yeah, and I think about. I mean, I think in terms of movement, as I open this, I, I think about this all the time. So, and because I do spend time, I'm interested in tracking wild animals, and spend a lot of time getting to um, fortunate enough to have a lot of friends who are wildlife biologists, and so I've gotten to be out and do things with wild animals. Um, quite often. Like I think about even, even something as simple as, you know, a dog being taken out on a walk. Now a walk is an amazing thing. Um, but also like the rate that a dog walks is completely different than the rate that the person walks. And the idea that you're sort of tethered and and being forced to be not on their, their, their baseline rhythm of moving. And so I just, when I think about all of these pieces and us trying to, you know, we're trying to put together a life and these, just to be aware of the movement of all of these layers. Like I can't stop seeing the movement. That's just what I, you know, I guess must've come born paying attention to, but to look at like, what's the movement diet of the dog, you know, and if we put together a movement diet of the dog, is there, you know, time for wrestling? You know, if you look at all the behaviors of, you know, wolves or coyotes in this pack, like what do they do? And to be like, oh, how do I facilitate that. And the good news is when you facilitate that with your animals, you're usually also getting some of the novel movements that you yourself needed, you know, like, because, you know, in the case of like the wolf and the person, that was also a similar environment of, you know, um, these behaviors are sort of intertwined. And so I think about dogs and then I think about horses 
Horses is another one where I think many people maybe don't recognize the need of the horse, for example. Like when I'm looking before we came on to talk, I was looking at like, what is recommended for a happy, healthy horse, you know, and it'd be shelter and, you know, keeping their feet clean and, you know, general health things, you know, making sure they have adequate nutrition, you know, of course, all the things, but it was stumbling onto another, I think, veterinarian that had like a, um, a different view than just the nutrients, just making sure, like you said, you know, you could put out all the pre-mixed food for a foraging species, and that's actually not going to make them psychologically, you might prevent nutritional issues, but psychologically, and then other things might be failing. And she had said similarly with the horse, like there needs to be other animals and it's not an, enough. It's not that there's food, that there's grazing space, you know, to actively be looking for food and finding it and grazing is part of their baseline need for mm-hmm. movement. And and I'm just, I'm just wanting to introduce people to that idea that movement for animals really falls under a similar framework that we're talking about for movement for people, right? That there's a diverse movement diet that it considers where we've come from, from thousands and thousands and thousands of years and acknowledging that it's an inconvenience, but maybe it helps people make a choice. Maybe it helps people affect their behavior in some ways. I think important to me at this point. Yeah, that's a really good point that um, when you look at animal care, especially, and I've talked to a veterinarian in an animal welfare group at a university here and had just recently talked to an older veterinarian about free-range chickens and all he could talk about was that they are more prone to disease because they are foraging in wet areas and eating slugs or whatever that might have a virus and it's all he could it was all about the physical health. And when I tried to push in us more, it just wasn't going there. And then I talked to this younger veterinarian and she said, yeah, they are now trained in it. They are now trained in this idea of this extra layer of need. It's not just about having enough food, enough water, being free of disease, that kind of thing. Um, so that, that, that's an interesting concept, but that, that, that higher level of, um, yeah, just keeping them in kind of raw physical health in terms of being fed, uh, and watered and free of disease is still really dominant. Um, because the, the inconvenience, as you say, if we don't understand what we need, um, in that context of what we evolved to need, you know, we end up with things like sore backs, plantar fasciitis and sore necks, you know, and with animals, you get those inconveniences as well. So my father used to keep horses. I actually wasn't really into them, but there was a thing they did called wind sucking. Uh, it was against a post. Basically animals can develop these things called stereotypies and these stereotypies are a reflection of, um, frustrated needs. Not a symptom of not enough food, not enough water, physical health. This is like a, a mental thing. And so you'll see, um, you, 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 people will be familiar about it. I mean, stereotypes we think of in terms perhaps of someone with Tourette's that has a facial tick or says mm-hmm. something over and over again. This is a, a human stereotypy, but the stereotypical behavior also manifests in animals. So um, when you go to a zoo, perhaps if you look at big cats, obviously they're evolved to have these huge territories and to patrol them. So 
Although often when you go to the zoo, you might only see a bit of fur lying behind a rock. But if you look at the uh, perimeter of the animal's enclosure, there's often a worn track. And yeah, absolutely. These animals just, they'll just go round and round and round and round and round. They really need more room and they're just pushing the, the edges of this tiny, relatively tiny compared to what they need, even though zoo, zoos do their best. Um, elephants will sway their trunks. Um, chickens can feather peck. They pluck each other in a brutal, it's not even, it's not an aggressive way. It's just actually repeated plucking, repeated plucking until perhaps and there's some blood and then they do get a bit aggressive. Can, they can kill each other. It's pretty ugly and it's a massive problem in laying hens. That's why the beaks um, of those are trimmed. Are, are trimmed. Um, yeah. Pigs will chew each other's tails um, and that's why they cut their tails off. They clip their teeth. Um, so, yeah, and so instead of – and this is the reflection, again, of their, their needs not being met. And, and so instead of meeting their needs, we you know, mutilate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So signs of stress, I mean, in general, like the, like, I just feel like overall collectively needs are being met less and less, you know, like the actual, the needs that things have are not being met as we're meeting more wants and desires and, and extra things. So we're still busy meeting things all day long, but they're not the needs, you know, if we just talk about, you know, sleep and, 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 um, you know, fresh water, fresh air, fresh food, like the basic foundational rest. Those are things that people are just struggling with every day, all day long. And, and to trim away from the not necessary to meet the need is tricky. And to not really acknowledge the signs of not meeting the needs, you know, as you're talking about, you know, these behaviors that are indicators to me they're indicators of how the environment is doing how the animals or the people are doing with an environment and you know they're going off so my question would be as a way to address like what are ways that you are addressing it you write a book you've written a book to sort of help people recognize what their chickens are saying in this case and I, I love that you brought this you wrote this book at a time where um there's like food insecurity, food prices are going up, more people are perhaps, I know this was an issue in New Zealand where more people were perhaps going to keeping backyard chickens for food security or, you know, food prices. And you wanted to make sure if they were going to do it, that they did it in a way that worked for the chickens as well. What else, what else have you done to address sort of this thing that triggered you to go into this whole field so, so many years ago? Well, for many years, I did eat meat actually. I don't know. I just put things into two compartments. <laughs> what I knew about animals, I thought, and what I ate. And then um, I, I write about animal welfare. So there's not there's not many people around the world that really understand animal welfare science, um, take the time to look at what's happening in the industry and put the two together and try and explain, you know, actually this is this is really wrong. Um so, and those, those I think, are, are widely read within New Zealand, those articles. But so, in the process of doing that, yeah, I, I, I read very closely some of the things that were happening 
in New Zealand, which is said to have the best animal legislation, animal welfare legislation in the world. But I can tell you that's not saying very much. Um, so what was being pushed back against by industry in terms of the changes that the scientists wanted to see made, just little things that should seem so obvious. And it just made me realise the full kind of, I just became horrified. In fact, it was just one night in particular I was reading about what's happening with dairy cows and there are a few things and it just, I was just overcome with nausea and just, that was it. I said, I'm out. I am out. I am mm-hmm. out. And from that night I was out. So what do I eat? I don't eat meat. I eat, I do eat eggs from my own chickens and I will eat fish that my husband or his friends have caught because they go fishing. Although actually at less and less of, that, then those things are really important to me to start with, but less and less of even those now so yeah big journey big journey to change mm-hmm. what you eat um also I was very really concerned about the health effects so I did spend quite a lot of time like oh my goodness am I going to compromise my health if I do this and in fact all the evidence and I am really used to reading scientific papers mm-hmm. yeah no all the evidence just pointed out either I'm going to do depending on what kind of realm you look at either I'm going to make no, there'll be no problem for my health or it'll be way better. So um, I, I felt really confident that that was um, a good way to go. But, yeah, recipes, cooking, uh, satisfying other people in the family, it hasn't been particularly easy, but I love these kind of challenging adventures. Of course. And then what else What else are, What else? else are? is there to do? Like I, I think a lot about um, – <laughs> I think a lot about animals – and AI, which we can talk about a little bit here in a second. But I'm, I was, you know, I had done, um, I did an interview for a magazine once, and you know, they just wanted to see a day in my life, and and I had put in, you know, some of our chicken care that was there, you know, because we, you know, we eat our eggs. It's a big source of you know protein and calories for us. That is very. Um, ecologically sound you know we've got extremely happy animals and they live their life there and we've got this great sort it's just, it's perfect you know like it's a nice exchange but they wanted to take that section out because they were a vegan publication and didn't want to have anything i mean and the piece was about how we were doing it so i it made me think what where do the chickens go? Like, where do we, where do we want the animals to go? Like, I definitely can see um, needing to change this idea that animals are here to serve us in some way, that that could be, that that could count as a life, right? Is to be entirely simply for your uh, consumption, like that there's no, there's no other point to you as a, as a being. But I do wonder where do they go? Like, where do, like, pets? Like, would would people, would we distribute the animals that have been created, you know, that have been bred? Like, they've been made. They they have, they didn't exist, and now they have existed. Do we, should they go out of extinction? Um, should, or become extinct? Should they become extinct? Should they be distributed and, you know, not produce anymore? Like, I'm just always interested in the philosophical. Like, what's, and I don't expect you to answer it, but I, I do wonder if you had thought about that at all. It wouldn't take very long to stop producing them because they have really short lives, the ones we eat. Mm-hmm. 
really short. You know, the chickens yeah. are 35 days, right? So, um, and these animals that we get all have wild ancestors. There might not be many left. Um, so it's not like if we stopped breeding them, there wouldn't, we'd be sending things extinct. I don't think yeah. there's any situation where there are no wild ancestors remaining. The wild ancestors aren't the one that have, ones that have been bred to be, you know, there's, with, with pigs now there's more piglets than there are teats on the mother. So, in wow. fact, you'd actually be taking them back to a kind of a more balanced mm-hmm. physical right. presence. I don't, I don't know the answer with pets. Um, I, I really struggle with it because I really love my cat. I love my cat. Um, and I know people feel the same about their dogs. I mean, obviously, you don't, again, you don't need to keep breeding these animals. Mostly these breed, these animals are oh, sure. bred in a really kind of controlled way, so it wouldn't take very long for that to stop. And, yeah, so there's some vegans love their pets. Some vegans think people shouldn't even have pets because, in fact, you're keeping them for your own pleasure and gratification. <laughs> um, and, and, and I see both sides of it. Yeah. But, but the, the, I know that the, the pull we have on our pets is, you know, there's plenty of people who would rather go vegan than lose their pet. It's it's a really mm-hmm. strong pull, yeah. Well, and, I, and you know, I think there's lots of different ways to look at ways. There's there's many different ways that we can make alterations to so many of our behaviours in a way that is comfortable to take, to remove some of the tremendous burden that we've placed on everything. Like mm-hmm. there's... There's going to be an acceptable level for you, you know, whether it's, you know, reducing how many, how often you eat meat or, or, you know, or how many animals you're eating from or where you're getting it. Like there, there's so many different ways, or maybe you're not going to touch your diet, but you would um, go out and become more aware of animals in general. Like that is one of the things that I think I'd also like to, um, put a question forth to you would be, I do think that we're sort of not fluent in animal. You know, we're not, we're not fluent in animals and what they are, you know, they're sort of objectified. They are a commodity in many cases. How would you recommend that, that people listening to this, you know, I I went to that bird language class and sort of the secret lives of, of birds became more aware to me. And then I became more aware of them. And then it changes the relationship that I am in with them. What would you suggest people do to increase their fluency in animal? I think the best way really is to do the kind of slightly formal thing you've done and, in fact, go on a course, but also the slightly less formal thing is just hanging out with people that do really understand them. Because, you know, if you go for a walk with someone, for example, who's really passionate about spiders and knows a lot about spiders, especially a teenager or a child, because they're not quite so, you know, if they're excited about the spider they find, they're going to tell you, stop and tell you all about it. Whereas an adult might think, oh, you know, that's not socially acceptable and I'll just keep walking and we'll talk about the local gossip or whatever. But um, being with people who really understand any aspect of, of animals or insects or fish or whatever um and asking them you know overtly giving them permission to tell you more and more about them is is a really great way I'm not sure if we really do get it just by going for walks through a forest and not have it it's like we need someone else with the key to open that up a translator you need a translator 
We need a translator. And then once you've got it, you've kind of got it. But it's, um, I think that's a really fantastic way. I don't know whether, obviously, when you live with a pet or you work with animals, you do get to understand a lot about that species. Um, you won't get to understand a lot, everything, without, again, a translator. Uh, but what I do notice is that there's a lot of people that adore their cats and dogs but think nothing of eating factory farm pigs. So I don't necessarily think that understanding and adoring animals that we've put in the category of, you know, lovely, friendly pets, we're, we're absolutely hopeless at transferring that to <laughs> other animals, which will have, you know, where we're talking the big things like fear and pain, a pig feels that the same as your child, you know. Yeah. Neurologically, the, the nerve pathways are all the same. Well, my cat's got bad teeth. I'll spend lots of money and I'll take him to the vet to fix his teeth, you know. But that cat's distress is no uh, worse overall than the, the chicken's distress or the, the calf's distress taken away from its mother. So, yeah, we, I don't think that learning about one animal necessarily opens your mind to other animals a little bit perhaps if you let it if you if you open that doorway yeah well we have a hard time doing that for even people <laughs> you know what I mean let alone animal like it's this very it's the same sort of phenomenon it's like I love this person these people but over here I can't really make the leap um I do like that point I think um for many people you will have access to animal biologists experts translators if you will of all different types where you live you just have to seek them out, you know, like there are probably conservation projects happening wherever you live and to reach out and see if there's an education night, if there's a night where, or there's um, special situations, you know, where you get to, like, we've been able to do things with mountain lions and, and bears here. And just because they're here, I mean, I live in a, a very particularly wild area, but I know that there are people everywhere trying to get people interested in in the problems that are being created by the people who live in the area sometimes too. This is not necessarily factory farmed animals, but this could even be wild animals that similarly because like where we live, traffic and cars have become, have created basically a physical barrier that is preventing the animals from moving off of the peninsula to their eventual total demise because there's no way for them to meet their breeding needs, you know, and I just, and it seems like, well, they've got, they've got a really huge backyard. They've got a, you know, a, a 3 million acre backyard, but it's not enough because it's not as easy as saying you could get your lives worth of movement in a backyard. Mm -hmm. There are some things like migrations, like you can't put all the whales and, you know, you can't put them in a pond and, and create a cubic feet equivalent of water because it's the thing with natural movement is it's nuanced and sometimes it involves long distance traverse traversing, for example. I, I um, think can I just jump in there, Katie, and say there's also that kind of issue that with animal movement that sometimes we're forcing too much of it. Mm -hmm, so that's right. we don't have wild native mammals in New Zealand they, uh, the only ones that live on land are little bats and then we have marine mammals but there's no native mammals um, 
no land mammals apart from the little bats which fly. But because we've cleared so much of our land to make farms, there's just little pockets of habitat that are suitable for these bats and they're being forced to fly really long distances perhaps to find enough food to find their mates um we have these godwits are birds that um they spend our summer in new zealand so they're here now and they'll be getting ready to fly to the arctic they do this enormous flight to the arctic um, they're kind of wading birds and they nest in the Arctic. Then when they've nested, they fly all the way back to New Zealand. But they stop and they have little feeding patches on the way. But in some places, the estuaries that they stop and feed on to refuel are being, you know, destroyed. So they can't stop and feed. So we're forcing too much movement in some cases. Okay, we're, mess- we're just messing with the the right movement, right? Yeah. If every animal has got, I mean, and I guess the, there's a pressure for the ones that can survive that change. But, you know, the, then there's always the chance that none of them survive, which is always what the concern is. And, 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 and a lot of species have gone extinct already. You know, this is just right. what happens. Yeah. Regularly. Regularly. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to add in about AI, and, you know, I, I had sort of mentioned it to you, was I'm a big fan of uh, the science fiction writer, uh, science fiction writer Ted Chiang. And he has this, um, he's not a very prolific writer. He writes very few pieces, but they're superb. And, you know, he's works on them for years. And he has, you know, one short story that was about the development of, you know, AI and, and people could um, interact with their AI. You know, they would raise their AI from infants and, 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 in this story, you know, the AI is sort of developing and because just in the same way that a child would, you know, you come with not as deep of understanding of what's going on, but then you, you know, you learn more context and you're, you're becoming more aware and understanding and you're interacting with more people and they treat you in different ways. And so you're just learning, um, and, you know, and there goes, it, this AI goes through its phase of you know being cherished and then eventually objectified and then more terrible things along the way as people are able to utilize something that they see as less for their own desires or whims or you know whatever that human thing is that we have and in an interview he had had written about this piece where he really felt that we shouldn't create AI because of we had yet to create anything that we hadn't completely just eventually treated as irrelevant, you know, like to bring another new thing and then just to sort of cast it aside as being less. And then now you've got another giant pool of mistreated. And I just, you know, he was talking about animals. It's like, it's sort of the same thing, making these things for ourselves, but we don't have, we have no track record yet of honoring anything that we've created in this way. So anyway, I just think about animals and AI a lot. Peter Singer is a philosopher. I don't know if you've come across him. He's Australian, but he <clears throat> taught at Princeton for a long time. Um, he's very interested in animal ethics and animal welfare and writes beautifully. And he's just written a piece on AI with another author and animals 
And he made three, yeah, he did make that point actually, that AI could, uh, you know, if we were treating these AI creatures or robots badly, what what, what are the ethical implications of that, which is exactly what you've just been talking about. He talked about um, the, the pos- a couple of, well, two or three positive possibilities with AI. One was that perhaps some of the animal testing that goes on could be replaced by AI. Uh, perhaps self-driving cars could be trained to avoid wildlife on roads. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps, and I believe this is happening, AI has been used to explore plants and seeds, lots of plant parts, perhaps even stuff that's currently considered to be waste that could create meaty tasting foods to satisfy people who didn't want to eat but loved the flavour. Um, so those all are positive. But, yeah, I think I got the sense that his overwhelming concern was that um, AI will be used to surveil factory farms instead of the human carers mm. uh, can become very good at picking up the signs of disease and things like mm-hmm. that, uh, thereby enabling even more animals to be packed together. Um, yeah. And that it all would depend what you programmed into the AI. Yes, you could actually program in signs of psychological distress and all that, but given how hard it is to get decent animal welfare welfare rules now, how easy really is it going to be to get those things put in there realistically? You think about who's controlling the, who's lobbying for the regulations, who's paying for the stuff. And so the likelihood is that it's going to be more all about, you know, more profit, more profit, more profit from a smaller piece of land probably so yeah I, I I would share his concerns on that well I like the balance you know I, I always appreciate a well uh sur- surveilled argument so I'll look into that um all right well anything else that you wanted to add I yeah. really appreciate everything that you've got done so far so many needs so little time mm-hmm. it's so little space um okay well did you have a book I I'm trying to start um I get so many questions about like, what's a good book to keep reading? So I thought I would start summing up some of these um, interviews with a book that you suggest. Well, I I don't think I have a a book that exactly hits the nail on the head of what you want. Um, uh, Peter Singer uh, has a book called Animal Liberation and he's just re-released it called Animal Liberation Now. It was very old, very famous, beautifully written. Um, it's not just about vegan activism. Like he's a very serious intellectual philosopher, but writes in such an accessible way. I'd really recommend anything by him. Really, um, David Attenborough's "The Life of Birds" really inspired me recently. Mm. Um, you know, David Attenborough has inspired so many of us over the years. So that's that's a fantastic book. Just the from the nesting behaviour to the migration, and um, yeah, lots of movement there um, tucked into. Stories that just make you marvel at nature. Yes, I love that. Um, I've got one. One is um, What the Robin Knows by John Young. And that was uh, some of the source material, I think, for that bird language class that I had mentioned previously. And then another one of my favorite books, they brought it to show it to you. I know no one else is able to see, but it's called Built by Animals, The Natural History of Animal Architecture. And when my kids were young, I had bought them this really beautiful 
children's book. It was probably more of an older, like a, a book for 10 or 11 year olds. And it showed all the different nest types of all the different birds. And um, the when my kids were a little bit older, they had gone, some of their schooling had um, required that children learn that, you know, the kids of the class learn house building techniques of the world that had sort of come up in different traditions of people and what are the styles of the houses that they make. And they made models of all of them. So, you know, like, the, for example, we had, um, my daughter had chosen the housing structure of the, you know, the people, the early people coming from Ireland, uh, where her family line is from. And it was, you know, weaving wood and then covering it with mud. And, and, and we, she harvested all the materials and made a small model, but it was like a way of connecting. But one of the things that's really beautiful in, it wasn't in this book, but it was in some other research that I read is that the animal houses that persist are um, very simple and used, made by these simple repetitive movements, that this is sort of the characteristic of an animal that persists with its housing. And, you know, I'm always thinking about how far we've come as people um, technologically, but, you know, as our houses move away, as our dwellings move away for, for most of the people living on the planet um, from very simple, you know, designs that you're constantly working on, like animals are constantly working on building their shelters, you know, how challenging it would be for someone to be able to make their own home now with the simple repetitive movements. And just this is why I study animals and non-human animals sort of at the same time to keep that bigger picture in mind. It's like, what would it be like to create a simple shelter? Camping is always a fun way of, you know, throwing up a, a simple shelter. But there are many people who live in houses that are, we would call them rudimentary, but they're just simple repetitive motion using available materials that are close. And anyway, I'll send you this book if you want to, if you want to read it. It's a far, I I can find it here, Katie. The postage between America and New Zealand now is absolutely crazy. Far too expensive, but thank you. I can definitely, I've written it down and I will, I will find it. Yeah. I, I, I heard something recently in these, again, these people had got some they're talking to some hunter gatherers and they're like, so, you know, how long did it take you to build your house? And they said, well, you know, everyone helped me and it was done in two weeks. Yeah. And this this person living in England, I think, and he was like, well, you know, it's going to take me 30 years to pay off my mortgage. <laughs> yeah. What would you rather have, actually? I think I'd rather have the former. Yeah, I mean, it just is, it's, it fits well into the model of that's what you're doing is sort of your work of living. So as... Um, I was just listening to some interviews about like, what's the best type of, um, if you're trying to say, they're trying to figure out like, what's the best way to help communities that need uh, income money, you know, around the globe. And is it better to give small payments or one big payment and actually replacing the grass roof with, you know, a corrugated metal roof was was a good investment in the sense of if you have to constantly be replacing your grass roof, there's no way to ever start participating in this global economy that's slowly taking, you know, so it, mm-hmm. I, it's just, 
just to throw that out there to balance it all out is, you know, as, as our work, you know, for chickens who are still just only being chickens, you know, and not having to also have a job and then do their chicken work on the side, it's, these are complex philosophical discussions. I just appreciate you starting with me a little bit. It has been a really great pleasure, Katie. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. That was Dr. Andrea Graves, author of What Your Chickens Want You to Know. You can order a copy from her New Zealand publisher. If you're keen, you can find a link in the show notes. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Now go. Get going. Go outside. Go on. Go. Go. Get down. Go on. Go on. Hi, my name is Hannah from St. Louis. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. We hope you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. Our theme music was performed by Dan McCormick. This podcast is produced by Brock Armstrong and is transcribed by Annette Young. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to audio and find out more about Katie, her books, and her movement programs at nutritiousmovement.com.